Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fully Books, the Hidden Gems author podcast in which Craig Touch and myself, Roland Hume, chat some interesting figures and leading lights in this crazy industry we're in of writing and self-publishing. And today we are delighted to welcome Andrew McDowell to the Fully Book podcast. Andrew McDowell is an author of poetry, short stories, essays, and you've got your first full-length novel, Mystical Greenwood, out. Uh, we are delighted to have you, Andrew. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me, Roland, and I'm very happy to be here. So I'm doing very well, and as Roland said, yes, I've written poetry, short stories, and essays, and I have one novel out called Mr. Greenwood, and there's a copy of it right here for anyone who wants to see what it looks like. There and, we go. And I should mention also this is actually the second edition because the original publisher was forced to close during COVID, so got a brand. that one came out last, this edition came out last year. So just just one more obstacle for to be faced with in the life of a writer. And of course, we wouldn't be here without the man himself, Craig Touch, the owner and founder of Hidden Gems and an author himself. How are you doing today, Craig? Doing great. Thanks, Roland. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Um, and yeah, as uh, Roland mentioned, just another challenge, which is sort of the focus of today's episode, where you know we're we want to talk about the challenges that authors face in uh that they have to overcome sometimes to to write um and you know things that have nothing to do with writing uh but you know we all have sort of different things in our lives that that are our own personal struggles um and you know you know you have your own and i'm going to let you talk about those uh and that will be sort of you know, what we'll focus on in terms of how you've dealt with that and then sort of figure out if there's ways that other people can apply those sort of way, uh, techniques that you've used to their own struggles, whether they're the similar struggles as yours or, uh, or other ones. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got started writing and, you know, what some of those challenges are. Certainly, Greg. So, I think I got interested in writing when I was young. As I say on my author bio online, I, I got interested when I was 11, but it wasn't until I was 13 that I really got serious about it, which I guess started with what would eventually become Mr. Greenwood. As I started working on it more and more, I got more invested, and that's when I knew there was no going back. But I would say a lot of the obstacles I have had have had to, to do with um, having Asperger's syndrome, which of which I was diagnosed with when I was 14 years old. So I got diagnosed after I'd started writing, decided I wanted to pursue writing. So for listeners who basically don't know what that is, Asperger's syndrome is an autism spectrum disorder or ASD. And I got the way I got diagnosed is my mom actually checked out books in the library and read about it. And so eventually that's how I became to realize that's what I had. And certainly I would say there were a lot of obstacles for me personally, but which have poured over into the writing world, especially. And I'd say one of the big ones actually has to do with um, language, as it turns out. So, so to help a little explain for listeners who don't know that much about autism, like autism is actually an umbrella term that can be used for a spectrum of different um, diagnoses. So hence autism spectrum disorder. And Asperger's syndrome is on the high-functioning end. So those on the low-function end who are severely autistic, sadly, will never be able to learn language or to learn how to speak. 
and will be dependents for the rest of their lives. So in that, when you look at it from that perspective, I'm actually very fortunate because being high functioning, I was able to learn language and thus go to school. I learned, I was able to go to college and find employment and for all intents and purposes, pass through society. But that doesn't necessarily mean I, learning language was easy either. Because one of the hallmarks of Asperger's is, for me, I, I tend to take things literally or seriously. So slang and small talk have always been difficult for me. And so learning language in that regard, the way I've heard people speak, I would interpret it literally as well and try to imitate it. And so I didn't always learn all the rules in language. And as my writing grew and I got more invested, especially with Mr. Greenwood, and a lot of this happened not just during the editing, but like re-editing. So I think some people may not, or at least maybe some people going into writing may not know about this, but even after you get published, you're always finding grammatical errors. And if you can fix them, you go for it. But yeah, I had to do a lot of research as a result and learn things about language that I don't really recall ever learning that much about in school. Stuff like, you know, punctuation rules, rules about things like sentence interrupters, conjunctive and introductory adverbs, for example. So I had to really learn to teach myself things I hadn't known before. And case in point, I actually wrote an essay about my Asperger's syndrome, which is in this little anthology chapbook, Synergy. So not to sound derogatory, but yeah, if you read, read the grammar in here, you would see that I, back then I didn't know a lot. So I would certainly, I would say anyone going into writing has to be ready to learn about language and grammar more intently than perhaps they did in school. Yeah, you know, listen, that is a really, you know, inspiring, you know, sort of journey that you took because a lot of people, if they have um, a challenge in one particular area, often they'll avoid anything to do with that area, right? So that they don't have to work extra hard to, you know, they'll, they'll have to work extra hard to sort of function with that that issue in regular life, but they don't sort of make the career revolve around that. Writing kind of revolves around language. And that's where you've had the most difficulty. And yet you still chose to to become a writer and to just push past that. Um, and, you know, just figure it out, teach yourself those, those things that, you know, don't, that, like you said, that you don't learn in school specifically that other people maybe would have picked up inherently, like just, you know, through, uh, you know, through learning, through imitating other people. I mean, you know, you, you had said you imitated other people, but it was very literal, right? You don't see sort of the changes that they make, the, 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 um, the, um, the settings that they're in when they use particular language things, right? You would say, oh, they did this, they said this specific thing, I can say this specific thing here, but you don't understand, maybe you don't understand that that it was contextual, why they said it over there, right? So you have to figure that out um, on your own. And I think that that's really admirable. That I know that Roland and I both have sort of uh, a lot of experience with people on the autism spectrum disorder as well in our lives. Um, so, you know, it's really, it's great to see someone like you doing so well and, and, and exceeding in, in writing, which is, like I said, a hard, a hard thing specifically for you. So that's really great. Yes. Thank you, Craig. And, and certainly, yes, language and context has always been hard for me. And 
a perfect example of that was the reflection in my SAT scores because I actually did pretty well in writing and math. Those things, but when it came to reading, that section was always a more of a struggle for me than the other two. And that can still happen too with writing because going back to language, another way I limited, and this was something I guess I started from reading, you know, like classical literature, which we all do in school, like the way they use authors centuries ago would use language, especially or their vocabulary. Like I literally interpreted as a way to do good writing. And certainly when I started Mr. Greenwood, I wanted to use a lot of words and not just use the same words over and over again because I was afraid it was going to be bland, that might be bland or boring. But in the end, I found, you know, tastes have changed. And certainly, even though I tried to create a poetic style to evoke feelings, especially when I described the imagery of nature, because I wanted that. Some beta readers did point out that I had gotten a little too flowery, so I had to tone it down. And even after that, there have still been a few critics who thought the language was still too wordy or flowery, but I've had to learn to accept that, you know, sometimes not everybody has the same stuff, same feelings or thoughts when it comes to how they read or what they read. And the truth is, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. As strange as I may say, because that's another feature, I guess, with Asperger's, because I've always been a, someone who strives for perfection, and that was reflected when I was trying to edit. But you can only do so much, and even afterwards, eventually it just wears you out. And yeah, I've, I have felt that at times, and so I've had to learn, and I still am learning to accept that, you know, I'm not going to be perfect all the time. And and I think especially in, in this day and age, especially with the advances people have been talking about with AI, being imperfect just shows you're human. And yeah, I've had to learn with, you know, like the thesaurus, you know, you just can't just choose different words all the time because they have different subtle meanings too. It's like what Mark Twain said when the difference between the right word and almost right word is like between the lightning and lightning bug. That's so fascinating to me. Uh, I, I, um, what you were saying about having to learn, learn language, there's so much to language as Craig suggested, but, uh, I think regular people, uh, just intrinsically know or inherently know, but when you start examining it, you realize all sorts of complexities that exist that, that we're not even, even people who think they know how to speak aren't aware of, like the order of adjectives. If you were talking about, um, an old wooden shoe. That's how you would say it. You wouldn't say it's a wooden old shoe because that sounds weird. And actually, it turns out there is a grammatical rule for the order that adjectives are meant to go in when you have a sentence. It's like it's meant to be the determiner, whether it's the or both or either. Then it's whether it's good or bad, like the opinion. Then there's a the size of it, the shape of it, the age of it, the color of it, the origin of it, the material of it and the purpose of it. And they all have to go in these direct orders. And I don't think anyone teaches us that in school. But to so many people, you hear it and it sounds wrong, but you can't explain why it sounds wrong. And I guess coming, looking at language from a much more literal perspective, you know, it, it, it would be impossible to understand why that rule existed. And yet it does. Sorry, I went off on a bit of a, a rant there. No, that's perfectly fine, Roland. And that's one, another one of the things I learned when I was doing research, you know, in order to improve my writing. And especially with the new edition of this little agreement, I wanted to make sure that the grammar was better than before. And yeah, and yeah, there is a way 
when you have adjectives that build on one another, yeah, you, they have to be in order. And if they were not, you would have to put comma a comma in between to show that they bear like equal weight. So like that's really the only way. If you really wanted to say it that way, wooden old, it'd be like saying wooden and old. I found what you said about perfectionism as well to be really fascinating because I think if there is an industry that uh, that ha- has amassed more imperfection than any other, it's the self-publishing industry. And yet, you're absolutely right. Perfection could almost be an enemy to progress. People want to be perfect, and they almost delay themselves writing things or publishing things because they don't want to release it unless it's perfect. But actually, as you said, it doesn't need to be perfect. Some of the most memorable books of our time are very imperfect. I mean... Twilight by Stephanie Meyer uh, is a book that is wildly popular and resonates with so many young people. And yet, if you read it, it's not technically very well written. And so it's interesting that writing is just a tool. It's communication. You use language to explain what you're thinking and you use it almost like a carpenter craft something. And so it's so interesting to, to speak to you who's so meticulously studied uh, every detail of it in a way that I think many of us don't. Yeah. And even in my studying, I found sometimes I come to different conclusions than I might have before. It's like, as I said, you know, sometimes you don't have to be perfect because even if you don't want to use, if you try to use perfect English, I've learned in real life, people don't always use perfect English when they talk. It's like the dreaded cliches that nobody wants to use. Like they always say, avoid them. And, you know, I have tried that as well. Avoid them like the plague. Yeah. So <laughs> I think someone, I don't remember where, point out, people still use them when they talk because, you know, yes. their familiarity. So I guess the compromise there would be, for me, would be if I were going to use one, it would only be in dialogue, not there, not in the text. Well, and that's the way it generally should be if you can, you know, but uh, people use use it in speech. People use slang, and I know that that is something that, it can also be really uh, and slang and sarcasm, right? Sarcasm can sometimes go over the head of somebody with, you know, Asperger's where they, they're, they're taking everything literally. They don't get that you're saying it ironically. Um, and so, you know, the, the ability to, to understand those things and put them into writing, if you can, shows that you're, you know, you're really learning to go beyond what, typically your disorder would have would keep you from from being able to to do so so with reading and language being such an uh something you identified as a challenge to you what was it that made you want to be a writer so badly what was it you were trying wanted to say well i kind of as a little kid i always you know like other kids i did have you know like make believe i loved like imagining myself in certain scenarios and this kind of ties in also with another key characteristic of people with Asperger's is having focused or intense interests where they will learn as much about them as they, something as they can. And, and that itself can vary from person to person. Like I've heard examples of like where someone who was so loved music that they became such a master at it. So in my case, before writing came along, it was always, I liked learning about different things. And, and when reading, I always, liked reading fact books more so than maybe book like novels. So, and this would change from time to time. There would be like different periods in history that I like learning about, or I love reading about animals and that love of wildlife. And I guess nature and extension is what eventually found its way into what became the heart of Mr. Greenwood. It wasn't there quite at first, but when I was trying to 
find something that would make it more unique and give the book a heart, as one viewer critique said it, reviewer said it had a heart. The special importance of nature was what eventually became the heart of the of that novel. So it was that make-believe, I guess, that is eventually what fueled it. And those interests are kind of why even now I hope to do many other genres because I've had so many interests throughout my life. So I, I find it kind of interesting as well. Some of the things that you started writing with are very structured, like poetry, often with sonnets or haikus. They have a structure to them. And that's why you read an uh, that's why they can be so satisfying. Short stories have to have kind of a structure to be a satisfying short story, uh, and you have to compress it into a short uh, space. Um, and fantasy, as as a novel, as a um, as a no a fantasy novel, normally follows almost something like Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. And so, I find it really interesting that you seem to have gravitated towards some of the most stru uh, structurally satisfying types of writing to do. Yeah, I mean, especially when you have examples before, you kind of think of maybe how you would improve them or do them yourself. So this might surprise some viewers. Like some people have thought because my desire for pattern and perfection, which is actually not too dissimilar from OCD, as some have pointed out, I'm actually not a full-blown plotter when it comes to fiction. I'm more of a planter. So because especially over time I found... The anxiety, you know, if like certain rituals or patterns are broken, like it can be just to uh, wear me down sometimes and it creates anxiety that really is not worth it. So in my personal life, especially if even though I still have some patterns, I've learned to give to let go of some of other, others. That's, so basically, yeah, that's really interesting because I, I would think that, you know, plotting would be something that would be more satisfying and, and easier because you can follow a set of rules. You can plan things out, but, but it makes sense what you said, you know, because we've all, as, as a plotter myself, we've all found that, you know, you can plot as much as you want, but things are going to change. So, uh, so it makes sense when you say that when that, for, for you, when those changes come, that causes anxiety because now it's breaking those rules. So yeah, that, yeah. that really makes a lot of sense. I yeah. think you just dropped a really a big truth bomb to a lot of authors listening to this again about the perfectionism and and you know you you'd say that you learnt to kind of give up that because you realised that the it would cause anxiety and so you kind of follow a more pants to route. I think there are a lot of us as authors who get frustrated and almost block ourselves off because we want to you know have that perfect writing time that sense of perfection. How do you go around uh, teaching yourself not to? into that to to un to to change your behavior to provide a a more uh conducive environment for yourself well outside of writing it's been a different it's been different from i guess pattern to pattern and sometimes i just look at the pattern and i had to decide is it really worth keeping it and certainly when i let go and decided to try letting it go i found i'm still okay with writing i would say certainly going back to plotting versus pantsing I guess I'm one of those people who likes to think of the first draft as almost like, you know, the plot, figuring out the plot and letting things unfold. And, I, and right now, because I've been, I had block for a long time and I've only just gotten back into a writing routine. And so my main goal is just try to get a couple hundred words out if I can each day. And it doesn't always happen, but I 
as long as I'm writing something, even if it's not like, you know, the next consecutive thing in the plot, if it's something that just comes to my head, I'll just write that down and just try to fill in the gaps. That's another great piece of advice. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> He's do it. you're doing all the things that, that we tell writers to do, right? I mean, the first draft... And we be... don't do it. And we don't yeah. do it. That's the thing. <laughs> you're doing the don't. things that we tell people yeah. to do, except none of us do it, even ourselves. Sorry, Craig, yeah. you were going to say something oh, really interesting. I'm, well, no, I, you know, I'm just saying, like, we say that all the time, and I definitely had a problem with this, is the first draft should be you telling yourself the story. This is how you get it all out, right? And then you tweak it all in your next drafts. But uh, so many of us are, uh, you know, they want to make it perfect the first time and and they, you know, waste a ton of time, you know, figuring it out. And, oh, I wrote this chapter now, I but uh, I got to change it a bit. It's not, you know, you got to let it go. Just write and write and write. And then write every day, write, you know, when those, the the spirit takes you and you, and, and you have a thought that you want to get down. You know, those are all things that we've written about in the blog and talked about on the podcast. And, you know, you're you're doing them all. So that's great. Yeah, I had to learn that with Mr. Greenwood and relearn it now with the sequel, which I've been working on for a long time. And I would also say Asperger's syndrome is presented obstacles, not just within the writing process itself, but also like in the marketing and social process, too. Because, as we've already said, I've had trouble with small talk and social skills and I've all, someone with Asperger's like me has, can have trouble empathizing with people. So sometimes I will use the wrong like word in context when talking or the wrong tone without realizing it. And it can be really difficult for me as well to maintain eye contact when I'm talking to someone. And certainly when I'm in a big setting, like with large crowd or if people I don't know, or even if I know some, but don't know all of them, it can be really nervous. Case an example, like if I'm going into like a lunch to sit down with people, I tend to gravitate towards the empty ch- a table that's empty. And some people think it's because I'm a loner, but I'm not. It's just because I would feel awkward sitting down where people are already sitting because I don't want to intrude. So, and yeah, this has happened at like Mark at like writing conferences and other events. And so, I've had to learn to be able to come out of my shell and speak to people. And And so certainly because I didn't, sorry, I just want to say also because, again, because of that vocal tone, when I was younger, I was a target for bullies because of, I saw things differently, but certainly later in later years in the writing world, using the wrong word or wrong tone, whether it be online or in person, some friendships have broken as a result of it. Yeah. You know, a lot of those things that you mentioned are struggles that, many people have, even without Asperger's, you know, introverts in particular, myself, you know, I can relate to a lot of that. Uh, I am not an overly social person. I enjoy being social. I enjoy going out. But um, if I was to go into a big writing conference where I don't know anybody, I would probably go sit in the table by myself too. I would feel the exact same way. I mean, like, I don't know any of those people and I'll just go sit down with them. Um, and a lot of people think that, you know, doing something like this is almost like in contrast to that, but it's not really right. Because I'm talking one-on-one, I'm talking to a, a screen. I, I'm not a person who likes to do, to stand up in front of crowds and talk. Um, and I think a lot of uh, authors, you know, we do, um, it's part of our blog. We, we do author interviews and, and 
one of the questions we often ask is whether they consider themselves an introvert or extrovert. And I'd say probably 90% of authors consider themselves to be introverts, which, you know, makes them have many of those same struggles uh, that you're talking about. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, speaking in front of crowds, what really helped me with that in high school, because my parents had to help try to coax me to come out of my shell and join a bunch of social clubs, because that goes back to, you know, changing pattern routine. I was afraid of staying after school because it was not what I was used to. But the one club that really helped me come out more than anything else was drama. So, which, because I loved, you know, acting out things, especially in my head or love make-believe. So being on stage, that was a really great way to help me come out of my shell. And I loved, and I loved the atmosphere and I loved being able to play somebody else on stage. So I haven't done that in a long time, but yeah, it was um, the real highlight of, I think my high school social life. And it kind of has poured over to writing as well. Cause when you're giving a writing presentation, you're speaking in front of a crowd. And so I try to keep something in mind that I kept in mind then to avoid, you know, getting freezing on stages. So sometimes just don't look at any one person, you know, try to pretend they're not there or just look kind of above. So, so that they're just above your eye level, your vision is just like they're just below below eye level, if that makes sense. That was something I did years ago. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's again, that stuff you, you teach yourself, you learn, and it's all these, uh, these things that some people just naturally get, but other people don't, but they're all things that you can learn. I find that really interesting. And that must help you actually as a writer, when you learn about things like that, when you learn, you know, how different aspects of uh, how to communicate to somebody and you realize, you know, if they tighten their fists, maybe they're angry. If their brow goes like this, I, um, you, you see these signs and it enables you to understand what they're thinking in a good way. And it ends up being a, a really good tool when you're writing, because they always say you want to show, not tell. So instead of saying he was angry, you write something like his brow furrowed or his hands balled up into fists. And it, it's almost like you'd be able to, because you've actually studied how it is to, to interact and converse with another human being. These are little cues that you can put into your writing that, that make it better and, and more resonant. And well, that's, I'm glad you brought that up Roland because um, showing not telling and character depth because of my Asperger's, because of my difficulty with empathy has also been one of my struggles in writing. So because of my detail work I tend to focus like on details on description and certainly I did more so in the past. And so I've had to learn about physical cues. And one book that really helped me with that was this one, The Emotion Thesaurus. Ah. So it had, and there were other books in this series too, including ones with positive and negative traits, which I've read as well. But I think this one has been a real big help during editing because you can find emotions and it'll give you like physical and mental cues. And so you can swap them out when you're editing and, and yeah, so that helps. Though I will say some people still think, just like with wordiness, some people still think I don't do enough showing. But but, but at the end of the day, I mean, writing and language is a tool more than anything else. It's not art. It's not magic. It's like you have thoughts in your head and you want to share them with somebody else. And your tool to do that is language. And so you put it together as best you can. And hopefully that and I think a lot of the times it's the ideas that are the stronger thing rather than the language. The language can be imperfect. 
And I was interesting looking at the reviews for like Mystical Greenwood. So many people have gone on. The the thing that you keep seeing repeated in the reviews is how much people like they, they describe your work as like refreshing and it's new. And it's kind of interesting there that, that maybe that's it. You've got these the, these ideas inside your head that uh, are you see things differently. And then you've actually been able to share those thoughts with that, share your different viewpoint with people by using language. And it uh, makes a kind of very tired and, and overwrought genre, a genre that has a lot of books in it, new and refreshing, because your viewpoint is new and refreshing to people, if that makes any sense. Uh, yes, I think it does, Roland, because, um, yeah, I, I, certainly when I... I always wanted to when I started Missile Greenwood and certainly with other stories that I want to write, I'm I would always be keen to look for something different that isn't others have not used to make it more unique. And that first started, for example, when I wanted the main mythical creature to, to be a griffin in Mystical Greenwood. I mean I had um dragons and unicorns in here and you may be, may surprise you, but yeah, there were many more in the earlier drafts. I had elves, dwarves, centaurs, the whole shebang. But I learned I was overcrowding, and I have my dad to thank for pointing that out to me. So I had to learn to cut some stuff out if it was not going to serve the story. But yes, I did want the griffin to be the main mythical beast, because I thought not many fantasy writers that I'm aware of, or ones that have, you know, in international fame have done that. And it started in other ways, too, as I was refining and going back to the, you mentioned Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, which I read. It's quite a good book. Yeah, I, I saw Mystical Greenwood as like the departure phase from like the call to adventure to the belly of the whale. And in a way, I when I decided to make the first mentor figure at the beginning of the story a woman rather than a man, because I guess in the beginning I didn't want the wizard to be right there right away, but I didn't have a mentor figure at first. So I, I tried that and I realized they were going to need one. So yeah, I decided I took a, what was originally a really minor character and a female character and made her the sorceress who was the mentor figure who took them on their journey. So that, and yes, and then eventually I decided to put the love of nature and of animals at the heart of it as well, which I thought was unique too. And, and that is something I would hope to bring to any story, whether, because I want to do horror, I want to do sci-fi. I always would like to try to find something that makes it stand out. Now, you've mentioned the editing process, um, and I was quite interested. How many drafts did you do before the book was first published, and what, how did you approach the editing process? Well, truth be told, I never counted the drafts, and I, I still don't count them. So it just goes through a lot, and I try to focus more on, you know, language, and like I said, the language, but also the story, and so keeping track of how many drafts there are is not something that has ever been at the forefront of my mind. So it's sort of a combination where, especially as I'm going through the plot, because at one point I actually started over, had to start over from scratch. So, but yeah, as time went on, I got feedback. I tried to think of how I could weave them better and fit them together into a better puzzle, because sometimes like writing and editing could be like, you know, putting a puzzle together or, if you want to go the horror route, it's like stitching together Frankenstein's monster. So it's all about finding the right way and the right way to put them in. And yes, sometimes I found little ways where I could connect scenes better or I realized, because some beta readers pointed out parts where it felt like this story was dragging, so I had to move them around. 
and try to put them in places where it wouldn't be that wouldn't be as much noticeable. And yeah, certainly with the proofreading, yeah, I did a lot of that, especially thanks to now that Microsoft Word has gotten so much more advanced. Now, oh, well, when I had to do the editing again between, you know, the new edition with the new edition and the new publisher, like editing, it's not just like finding words and punctuation, like they can find things like cliched phrases or even like words that feel redundant. So I fully embraced, you know, all these new patterns and looking for alternate words, but I had to learn, look at at them carefully because sometimes the suggestions would make no sense if I did them. So I still had to use my intuition and decide, is this really something I want to change? In most cases it was, but in sometimes I decided, no, it was better the way it was. Now that's it. You talk about um, people giving you feedback and you mentioned your father and you said something else, but you also mentioned beta readers. So, um, I mean, how did you go around that? Who did you share your book with and, and sort of how did you find beta readers? And, and I'm uh, very interested to see how you dealt with their reactions to your work, because often, you know, we, we've actually spoken quite a bit about beta readers and how, you know, you can get really good feedback from them, but sometimes you get feedback you might not necessarily want to consider so so as seriously. And also there's the interpersonal things that you've got to do with beta readers. So I'd love to know about that, about how you go around getting feedback for your work. Yeah, well, in Mr. Greenwood's case, um, I didn't really know anybody with writing at the start, so... My family were my first beta readers and some of some relatives who were willing to read. So some people say, you know, you shouldn't give it to your family, but I'd say, you know, if there are people in your family willing to read, it's a good place to start because you know that they're going to want you to improve and want to help you. But going beyond family to get views from people who are not relatives, that actually changed when I start when I joined the Maryland Writers Association several years ago. And that's a great, certainly if we have any viewers here and who are in Maryland, in Maryland like me, I highly recommend checking out the Maryland Writers Association at MarylandWriters.org because it's a great place to network and to meet publishers and other writers and get feedback and, and learn new things as well. In fact, that's how I found my first publisher. It was through someone else at MWA who had used them. And so, yeah, I was able to meet other people and I actually... Through joining them, I was able to form my own critique group. Wow. Well, I actually joined another one first that was already open, and then they – my first one, you know, they eventually disbanded because people had to leave, and then I joined another, but unfortunately that didn't end too well because that involved a case of, like I mentioned, you know, where I used the wrong text and a friendship was broken. But after that, after those two, I decided to form my own, and it's gone through several incarnations, and people have come and gone. And I've shared my work with them, and I've had to listen to their feedback. And I think the important thing, certainly, and this was one of the rules that I created when I created the guidelines, you know, we want constructive feedback, not negative. So if you don't like something, you know, just say why you didn't like it, how you think you can improve it, which I think is important for any beta reader. You want them to try to build you up and not tear you down. And so, and yes, I'm very happy with the group group that I have now, and they've been really helpful and encouraging. And just meeting with them and talking about talking about my writing, listening about their writing too, it really helps motivate you. 
Now, your uh, Mr. Yes, Mystical Greenwood is a traditionally published, well, it's an independently published book, but it was originally published by Faycor Publishing, wasn't it? And then you said you've now got a new publishing publisher, is that right? Uh, Faycor is the new publisher. Ah, the yes. Original, yeah, the original right. publisher was called Mockingbird Lane Press, and sadly, like many other small businesses, they did not, they were not able to survive COVID. I've, I, I find that really uh, quite an inspiring thing because, you know, self-publishing enables anybody to publish their own books. There is an additional layer of challenges to approaching a publisher and getting a publisher to believe in your book strongly enough to then uh, then actually get it published. So why did you go down that route and um, how did you uh, how did you learn to do that and overcome the the um of the, the sort of mental barrier to, to go and uh, approach a traditional publisher rather than uh, publish it yourself. Well, that's a long, that's quite a story as well. Cause initially with a, a draft under a different title, I actually approached to my shame of vanity publisher and anyone listening concerning publishing, I tell you, you do, you should not pay a publisher to publish your work. That's the key yeah. thing to remember. Amen. Yeah. But yes, I was young. I was still a teenager, and I was inexperienced. I was, and I was in a rush, and that's, I think, I feel is the most important thing when you're trying to get polished. You need to take, be patient, and take your time. And so that experience taught me that I wanted to make find a publisher who, yes, would not require me to pay them, but at the same time, I felt if I went with a publisher who, and not self-published, I felt it would give the book some more. Shall we say? I'm trying to find the right word here, but I guess showing that somebody else was willing to take a risk on it, I think would give it more credibility, make it people will trust it more. And so I ultimately went with the independent publisher route because I did try querying several agents, but they all rejected me. And certainly from what I heard from others at MW at the MWA, like especially a lot of the big houses now tend to only really take like say, shall we say, authors who are already bestsellers or yeah. who are just celebrities who basically they only take what they know can sell. Yep. So, but yeah, I think working with an independent publisher, it it's more one-on-one and that always works well for me because when you have Asperger's like working one-on-one with someone or being in a smaller classroom in the class, which is why I went to a small liberal arts college that, that makes me feel more involved and yes, I I do like to be more involved in, you know, formatting the book and and the editing process. And I I got that with Mockingbird. I got that one on one relationship, and I got that again with Faycor. And the truth is, getting published with Faycor was really a lucky break because I was already I already had a relationship with them. I was in quite a few of their anthologies. Oh so, yes, from your short stories. Yes, and poetry too. And so yeah, and because I knew they liked to do supernatural and paranormal, I approached and I them to see if they were interested but i did just to be fair and make sure i knew i was going the right path i tried to look at a few others just to because i i learned from the past i did not want to jump into something even if in this case Bayacore, maybe i knew i was going to go with them i just want i didn't want to just rush but yes they were willing to take it on and as soon as i had all the rights back because i had to wait for the contra- old contractor runoff now i I find it so fascinating. We started this conversation and you were you were talking about uh, certain things were especially challenging to you, including like 
interaction and, and communication with other human beings. And yet so much of what you've uh, spoken to us about today beyond writing is forming relationships with other human beings, creating a critique group, a, uh, creating a relationship with the publisher through the work that you put there. And uh, it seems like you've been very successful in something that specifically you identify as a challenge. And I, and I think many people who are listening might think, um, you know, might hear what you said and hear so many things that you've done that worked for you that are similar to pieces of advice that they've heard from people like me and Craig. And the difference is you've done it, whereas I think a lot of people listening might still be stuck with that mental block of like just doing it and it's like how do you just do it how do you get faced with this challenge and just overcome it without tying yourself up mentally yeah. well i think the key to overcoming any challenge really is you know you have to build on the experience that you've already acquired and you have to learn through trial and error and pretty much all of my writing experience my social interactions building my website and it's all been trial and error and in those few cases where, you know, I've had stumbling blocks, where I've had block or relationships have been cut up or broken, I just had to learn I need to keep moving forward no matter what. And not. And the most important thing I think many writers will agree is never give up. And once I got so invested, you know, all those years ago, I knew I had to keep going, but I wanted to see this through. And yes, I just, even when criticism does take me, hit me hard sometimes, I just have to learn I have to keep going. And for those people who, like, you know, I got cut off with, like, I always try to apologize if I if I feel I'm in the wrong because I'm very conscientious. But if they don't want to rebuild the relationship, you know, it's as hard as it is and still is. I have to accept the fact that if they don't want to give me the second chance that I'm willing to, I just have to learn it's not worth pursuing. So talking about future uh where where do you see your writing career progressing and since you've already identified and overcome so many challenges in the past what new challenges do you think you'll face and what are your plans to overcome them well i mean mainly i've been focusing on trying to get the sequel to mr greenwood polish because um well i want to get it written first because i i did envision from the start creating a trilogy and yes, I do have many other genres I want to pursue, and I hope to get more poetry published. I and I have some other anthology appearances coming up, I know. But I guess the basically the challenges always come back, you know, it's with because every new project is different. And sometimes you just have to relearn the challenges and face them over again. And sometimes they'll go a little differently, or maybe they won't. It's just it's always the evolving and the relearning. And sometimes you build on what you what you've experienced and you just keep trying and treat each one as it is. And out of everything that you've accomplished so far, what's the thing that you're personally proudest of? Well, number one, I would say I'm proud that I did get published and I've had made many anthology appearances, but I think as a person, I think it's the self I'm proud of the self improvement that I've done that I've the strides that I've made to improve my skills as a my social skills and be out there. And I know there's still a challenge and I'm always going to have to deal with them, but knowing what they are, I think helps me. And that helps me, gives me the strength to face them because I know Asperger syndrome 
as I said in my the essay that I shared in it, it's both a curse and a blessing. It's 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 who I am, and so I just have to accept that. And in many ways, that's that's the real. I think that's the thing that makes successful writers. A word that I think we've heard more and more recently is authenticity. And I think it is when you could write authentically about yourself and your own life experiences. There are people out there who it resonates with. And because so many people are, are different, if you can bring your own different perspective to it, somebody who's never read something that resonates with them quite that way before will see it and read it. And through your work, they will feel seen. And I think that's what make it, it can make it so powerful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, like I, I, I find this whole thing so inspiring, and I, I love that, you know, you. I, I kind of feel like even whether you had Asperger's or not, you wanted to be a writer. You said that as a young age, um, and you didn't, you didn't let these challenges hold you back from that. And I think that that's what should be the takeaway from from this for everyone is. You know, there's lots of things that we want to do in our lives and we think that we can't do them because of internal or external factors. But, you know, a lot of times you can you can push through it. You can never give up. You can, um, you know, learn from your mistakes, figure it out and be completely successful at it because that's what you are. You are very, very successful as a writer. You're, you know, I'm looking at the reviews. You have over 40 reviews with an average of 4.7. That's that's amazing. That's great. Most writers would kill for that. Uh, you know, so all of these things that you did, you did it right. You went, you obviously followed the right path. You figured, and, and there was no plan. There was no layout for it because you had specific challenges that I don't know of too many websites or, or courses that teach these things to help someone like you, you figured it all out yourself. And I love that. And I think that that is the biggest takeaway from all of this is, is, people can whether they have the same struggle or something else you can still do it and i i'm i'm really really happy that you did and and that you came on to share your story with us thank you craig i'm i'm very happy to have been here and so thank you for having me well that pretty much uh, brings us to the end of the the time that we have but andrew where can people find out more about your books more about your writing and more about you Okay, well, my website is andrewmcdowellauthor.com. So anyone who wants to go there, I I have a blog there where you can follow me monthly. I do a p- monthly post, and I hope in my next one I will include, among other things, a, a video of this podcast for them to see as well. And I'm also on Facebook, so if you look on Facebook for Andrew McDowell Author, same on YouTube, that's where you can find me. And I'm also on Goodreads and Amazon, and my website has links to all of that and links to the places where you can find my books, including Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So, so yeah, there are several places where you can find me. Fantastic. Well, we'll put links down below in the description. And uh, if you are interested in finding out more about Andrew's work, head down there while you're down there, leave a comment and let Andrew know that, uh, that the wisdom he shared with us today was appreciated. Also hit that like button. And if you haven't to get, uh, already, hit that subscribe button and we'll be back next week with another episode of fully booked. So until then, thank you very much, Andrew and everyone. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.